Welcome to the Ohio Ministry Network podcast. The following audio was recorded at the 2014 Synergy Conference held in Gahanna, Ohio at Pathway Church. For more information, please visit our website, ohioministry.net. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you, Josh, for that introduction. Um, if you didn't hear earlier, from when we, we, as people were gathering, Josh and I go way back to a little town of Bartlesville, Oklahoma, home of Phillips Petroleum Company, and we grew up in the same hometown. I grew up with some of his older siblings, so yes, he's younger. Uh, my name again is Shelby Pratt, and I don't have a Twitter handle. It tells me to give you that. I don't have one. I don't like Twitter. Um, <clears throat> I don't like Facebook, but I do have one of those, but it's not the best way to communicate with me. Um, I've already asked for people to write down questions if they have them. It's not going to keep you from, as we're talking about a specific one, to raise your hand for a point of clarification, please uh, do so. Um, this is a great opportunity. I am astounded that my undefined Q&A session got so many participants. Uh, I'm a little, a little shocked, to be quite honest. Since two years ago when we had similar sessions, I think I had 12 in the most uh, of one of the church finance questions or sessions. So uh, you will be able to get this audio. I have no handouts because it was intentional, but the audio from this session will be available on our website and iTunes, etc. Um, how quickly? I have no idea because thank goodness that's not my area of responsibility. Okay, I promised, I promised D that I would answer a specific question that was left over from our, from our health insurance uh, discussion with, and introduced a couple of my friends. One's an older friend, one's a brand new friend. Barb McNamee is our health insurance broker uh, with the King Agency. She's also a vice president there, but she won't tell you that. Uh, she's awesome, love working with her. She brought one of her colleagues, Tom. Uh, with her today who deals specifically in, more in the individual and Barb is in the group health plan scenario and they were a very big help to several folks during our first session and I promised to answer one question at the beginning of this session and I'll try to do that. And the question is what about churches that want to reimburse their pastors for an individual health insurance plan? Uh, since 1961 that has been an option for a an employer to do that because an individual can typically get less costly insurance in that realm and they could get reimbursed for that and it caused no tax liability to that individual in doing so. It was treated as if it was a group health insurance plan and just like you can get an employer plan that does not require or cause any tax liability to you, it comes as a tax-free fringe benefit. You could do that as an individual as well. Uh, unfortunately, under the recent uh, Affordable Care Act, which is the greatest misnomer of ever um, in, in the history of mankind, uh, under the Affordable Care Act, um, that is technically not, no longer possible. Uh, with many things that are no longer, no longer possible, there's often exceptions to the rule, and that's what I want to try to talk with you about right now. Um, the key point here will be one participant one participant uh, so if you have two pastors for which you would like to pay insurance there is only two ways in which to do that that is through a group health plan that's a true group health plan that you obtain from a carrier or under um, a situation where you will reimburse them for their individual health plans but that must be now taxable income to them. It is no longer a tax-free fringe benefit. Um, and that is for uh, plans that begin on or after January 1 of this year. So if you have two individuals for which you are buying insurance, or reimbursing insurance, I should say, then that um, is now considered taxable income to those individuals and must be reported on their W-2 form. Uh, that is a painful, painful thing for many of our pastors because they have long had that happen without insurance being, uh, uh, or taxes being a component of that. Um, but it is the reality of where things stand at this point in time. Um, the, the best case scenario in that is that if your pastor owns their home and is already someone who itemizes tax deductions on their tax return. Because if they already itemize tax deductions, when this becomes taxable income, they're going to turn around and submit it as an out-of-pocket medical expense, which is then a deduction on their tax return. So hopefully a zero tax liability scenario. It just had to get routed and recorded differently. But 
uh, and I've actually talked with Barb and Tom a little bit about this this morning. Um, it's just something that we discovered on Tuesday. One of the ladies, Sarah House, in our office called the IRS and actually got a hold of somebody. That's the miracle of miracles. Um, <clears throat> and got a direct line to that somebody, which is probably the bigger miracle of miracles. Um, and we have, by looking at different codes and sections of all of this stuff, if you have, and I'm going to just give you the shortest, and again, I told you I don't tell short stories. The shortest answer is you have one participant that, for which you reimburse their insurance. That is, the way it says is that mark, the market reforms, translation, Affordable Care Act, the market reforms do not apply to group health plans, and this is total IRS ease, for group health plans with less than two participants. They just don't say one. They don't say one. They say less than two participants. So, in, so the, Obamacare does not apply to a plan, a group health plan, and coincidentally, let me give you that information, a group health plan can be defined, this comes right off of the IRS Notice 2013-54, that a group health plan can include the scenario in which an employer reimburses an employee for their coverage. So you have that kind of group health plan, only one person involved, the church can reimburse that individual. This is current understanding. Anything can change. They can close loopholes. At present, this is our understanding that you can continue in that form of scenario, that, that scenario. Carla. The question is, this is for audio purposes, everybody, so I'm not just being redundant. The question is, what if uh, the church wants to pay directly to the carrier for that, that coverage? This is where I have heard mixed things. Um, this does not talk about the employer providing, uh, paying directly to the carrier. This language of the notice that I mentioned specifically talks about reimbursement. So I would, I would want to follow their pattern as closely as possible to say we are reimbursing the coverage. I fear what might happen is if a church pays directly to the carrier, they, uh, I, this I have heard from one of my friends, uh, uh, that from someone he heard from, so, and it was another health insurance broker, not, not ours, that that is creating a liability for the employer of assuming, because they're treating that as a true group health plan in that scenario, and you may be exposing your company to some problem. It's probably not going to cause any tax liability to the individual, but it may cause the issue for an issue more for the employer rather than the individual. So I would always probably try to follow what their language says, and that is a reimbursement scenario. So that is writing them a check based on a bill that they provide with the assumption that they turn around and pay their bill. If they don't, then you got another problem that your leadership needs to deal with. <laughs> Okay, so I hope I answered that question well enough for you, D. All right, is there a statistic that shows, and you can get, keep, keep writing down questions and just get them up here to the front to me somehow uh, if you'd like. Is there a statistic that shows church size income and paid staffing for a reference? I'm, I'm going to try to translate that. Is there a percentage of your budget that you should pay in compensation? Is that a, who, who wrote this question? Is that, a fair, is that a fair translation of what you're trying to say? Where the average church is. Well, I can give you where the average church is, and I can give you a couple of good references if you're interested just in knowing probably the bigger question is, what is a fair compensation for our staff, not just our pastoral staff, but any and all staff? Uh, there are a couple of good resources. Uh, one is Dr. Hammer's um, compensation guide right now. The current version is the 2014-2015 Compensation Handbook by Dr. Richard Hammer. That's H-A-M-M-A-R. Um, and... Uh, the National Association for Church Business Administration, which is nacba.net, is their website, if I am not mistaken. They actually have a website called ministrypay.com, and they used to provide a paper survey that was exhaustive, to say the least, and now it's so exhausted they don't even do it in print anymore. It's You, you can get a subscription to their online service, and you can get as detailed or 
as information or as big picture information as you'd like in what is a fair wage for all of the realm of jobs within a local church, from pastor down to, down to custodial worker. Uh, it will give you by denomination, by region, by state, whatever you're looking for there. Now, to answer this particular question, I will say it depends. It depends. And the biggest thing that the percentage of your compensation budget depends on is whether or not you pay rent or a mortgage payment. Because if you have an outlay for your structure, for your facility, that's going to also be a rather significant portion of your overall budget. So if you are paying for a rent payment or you're paying for a mortgage payment on a property, then you're likely to spend somewhere around 35%, 30 to 35% of your budget for your compensation. That would be the ballpark. If you don't have a payment, therefore you're spending more, you don't have that big chunk getting taken out every month, you're probably going to be closer to 50% of your overall budget will be expended for uh, for compensation. And when I say overall budget, I'm talking about all the money that comes in for all of the various purposes of the church and then how it gets split back out. So I'm also counting in your missions dollars, your building fund dollars, your, um, your Royal Ranger money, your Sunday school offerings, anything that might come in, you're going to parcel back out in the proper pieces. So the totality of what comes in and then what goes out will be somewhere around 50% for between 35 to 50% of your uh, overall budget for compensation purposes. Any questions regarding that before I go to the next one? All right, missions giving. Do you give statements for under $250? If so, how do you track? Um, Any gift, any gift of $250 or more must be individually receipted or acknowledged contemporaneously. Well, what does contemporaneously mean? Well, in typical IRS fashion, there's not really a clear date. The best way I can say this is you need to provide an acknowledgement to your contributors before that contributor files his or her taxes. That, that is the true answer. So, so that's why there's no clear date because you don't know when your contributor is going to file their taxes. January 31st becomes the de facto because that's when employers are providing their 1099s, they're providing their W-2 forms, etc. So January 31st is the most common and highly recommended. Now, now hear me what I said, though. Individual gifts of $250 or more must be acknowledged individually. So you cannot provide a contribution statement that says, thank you for giving $5,000 to First Church in the year 2013. Because you have to be able to, the taxpayer has to be able to identify that they gave $250 or more on this particular date. Okay? Hmm? So you have to break it down every time that they give. Now, you, now you don't technically have to give an acknowledgement for anything that is two hundred forty-nine dollars and ninety-nine cents or less. I recommend that you do, um, because you're going to be doing it all in the same system anyway. Uh, so, but you need to be able to see on there that on June twenty-third, two thousand and fourteen. That's my birth date, in case anybody wants to know. Um, <clears throat> that on June 23rd, so-and-so gave $300 to the general fund and $100 to the missions fund for a total of $400. They need to see that $400 number on their giving report. Carla. That was my question. It's actually very specific. It's like, I I don't know if I said missions, but I have students, let's say, raising money, and they have 50 people that gave them $25. The question is, for individual gifts, specifically in regards to missions trips, where you have numerous donors with smaller amounts, how do you track that? How do you receipt that? Um, tracking, I would say, would be 
probably just within a spreadsheet because you're going to want to be able to track how much Susie Smith has accumulated for the trip. Then what you can do is you could treat the, the gift receipt acknowledgement very much like what you might provide for a gift in kind, which means a gift of property, where you could have a form letter with blank names and blank dollar amounts and a description of the trip and, the, and a blank place to put the date of the thing. And you could say, this is an acknowledgement to Mr. and Mrs. Jones for your gift of $50 for um, our Ecuador missions, missions trip, because I know Ecuador is where they're going pretty soon. Uh, and, uh, and gift date, whatever that date was, boom. I would keep a photocopy of that for future reference or scan it and keep it on file. And you could do it that way. That way you're not having to build an individual donor. Uh, some systems some systems have a way to put just an individual one-time donor in. You don't have to keep track of that record forever. Um, if not, then I would probably just do it that way. Okay. Excuse me. Whose tax number? What's that? Whose tax number? The, the, the church's tax number. They, they said this, this is our tax you know, giving number. Yeah, so well, it, that, that would be if you're again wanting to, why, why would the uh, recipient organization provide their tax ID number? That is for you to say, to point to that nonprofit corporation, that it is a valid, that it is a valid for-profit entity, or non, not-for-profit entity that can receive charitable contributions. That's, that's less for you and more for the, the, the company providing that. Uh, just a second. Good question, Gary. Uh, we have a thrift store. Mm -hmm. And uh, how much, you know, they bring in bags of clothing. And uh, they say large bags. How much can we give them credit? And how big is a large bag? The question is, how do you how do you assign a value to a gift of do, a donated property uh, for a thrift store? Um, this is a good question. The easiest answer I can give is you do not. The recipient organization, when they receive a gift in kind, never, never, never provides the dollar amount of the value of the gift. The only exception is when there, are, when there is something that would have required an actual appraisal, and that's when you hit something that is in excess of $5,000, that an appraisal must be ordered. There is a tax form specifically for that purpose. And all that, the, all that the recipient organization does in that scenario is they sign that, yes, indeed, we received this after the appraisal has been done. They still provide no value. The appraiser has provided the value. For your, what you do as a, as a thrift shop is you provide a letter, a gift receipt, or whatever, some kind of acknowledgement that says, thank you for your gift of one, large, one bag of clothing. I, pro I probably, for my intents and purposes, would exclude the descriptive language. Yes. Then what happens is you give that receipt back to Josh, who gave that, that bag of clothes. Josh takes that. And it, depending on how much he claims on his taxes for that is whether or not he has to fill out special forms for, for assigning a value to that. He's the one that's responsible for assigning the value. And if it's over $500, he actually, there is a form specifically for that at which he has to fill out, and it goes along with his tax return. Uh, again, at 5000 there's another form that, test, that uh, verifies that, it, that an appraisal has been done, et cetera, et cetera. But the recipient organization never assigns a dollar value to those gifts. Uh, if you're interested later, I'll tell you a battle I fought on that subject many years ago in my first role as a youth pastor. So, Do you have a follow-up? Uh, yeah, uh, I know one place that gives $65 a bag. Uh, and uh, here's the thing, it's considered a large bag, but... Um, and the question was asked, and they said IRS said uh, the highest, you know, recommended large bag of clothing, sixty-five dollars. But that's somebody's opinion. I would say that it, it is still ultimately the donor's responsibility to assign that value. I, you know, you don't know what might be in there. They may be Tommy Hilfiger clothes and polo, or it may be Walmart faded glory. Um, 
And I shop at Walmart, folks, so I'm, this came from Goodwill, I'm going to tell you. They assign a value to it? Yeah, and then, then they sell the single shirt, shirt out of that bag for three bucks. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, yes, sorry, I about forgot your question. Yes. You're saying an itemized statement is okay because each any any gift that's two fifty is listed and then the total at the bottom that's considered appropriate like one time giving them the their different. Yeah, as long as uh, the question is again regarding the two fifty acknowledgement, it can be part of a larger group that gives you the cumulative total for the year as long as the individual gift is identified by date. Uh, that that is the key. That is the key in regarding to acknowledging gifts of of 250 or more. All right. I'm in case those who wrote the hard questions regarding helping a board understand things. Um, <laughs> those are being saved. <laughs> I'm hoping I run out of time. <laughs> um, Wow. Okay. Is there is there any church that invests ten percent of tithes and offerings for the future? Would it be biblical to do so? I do not know of any church in particular that does this. Although I do, I have been in churches that practice saving. I think it would be uh, it is common sense of personal finance would apply to some degree. I, uh, for the Ohio Ministry Network, which uh, for the year 2008, which was before I came uh, to the office, that was their worst year in recent recorded history as far as, as far as their revenues. Now let me tell you where their revenues come from. Their revenues come from churches who give out of their general fund. If they are what's called a heart for Ohio church, then of their general fund, they give 1% of that general fund to uh, network ministries and 1% to Heartland operations. Uh, the rest of our uh, primary unrestricted revenues come from ministers' tithes that they are required. All of our credential holders are required to contribute. Now, so you have so our sources of revenue come from churches or church employees, as it were. Um, well, when 2007 and 8 hit, uh, the recession was going on. Um, Churches were not receiving as much in general funds, so they weren't forwarding. Their 1% was still coming in, but it wasn't as large as it was. Their ministers may have gotten pay cuts during that time, so their contributions were not as large. I think it would have been awesome had the Ohio Ministry Network had about... At that time, about a year's worth, but that was impractical. You know, common financial, uh, personal financials will say to have an, at least enough cash on hand for three months of of your obligations. Um, now, whatever that, if that's ten percent, awesome. Uh, many churches would guff, would guffaw, they would ridicule, saying, "Oh, it's God's money. We've got to get it back out into the kingdom." I'm not going to argue with them either. Because there is a measure of faith, and I, you hear of stories that churches that have, when they've had a surplus, they've been in, they've had problems because they didn't know what to do with all of the money. It was, it was like a, it was supposed to be a blessing, and it was a curse to them because they couldn't, they couldn't uh, figure out how best to use that. Uh, so, and unfortunately, they don't have a plan for it until it's already there. You know, and so they're in the midst of trying to figure out what to do with it. Then I've heard the scenario say, you know what, we're just gonna we're just gonna give it so we can get released from the burden. And indeed, it breaks, and they they start having greater revenues coming in from tithes and offerings, and they don't have a reserve. Is there a right or wrong? Is one is one lacking faith by having common sense? <sighs> Oh, if I were, the question was, if you had a reserve, would you put it into risk or non-risk? I would definitely put it into very liquid, non-risky investment. Because this is, this, is this is money that the church people have entrusted you with. They are, they are assuming you are not going to lose any of this money. So d- definitely, if I was blessed with that precious situation, uh, <laughs> I, I, I would have it in as conservative a, a, of an investment as I possibly could um, and probably have it in one that was not, uh, unless I could parcel it out, I would not have it tied to any length of time. You know, I wouldn't put it into a five or a 10 year certificate of deposit. I might put it into a f- some smaller term deposits. Um, 
to try to gain some additional uh, gain some additional return on it. But I would keep it as liquid and as secure as I possibly could. Uh, you know, the is it biblical? I'm gonna the. Sh- The short answer is yes, or the short answer is no. It depends, you know. Uh, you know, Proverbs, Solomon tells us that a fool spends whatever he gets. So that assumes saving. Um, the wealth of the wicked is saved up for the righteous. So, you know, the, some could say, well, then if the wicked people are going to give me all their money, then I don't need to keep any of my own. I don't think that's what it says. <laughs> Okay, I probably didn't answer that question thoroughly, but I hope it helps. All right, Uh, I'm skipping the board question again. Is there a better way to reflect a loss for an expense than just posting the transaction as a miscellaneous in and out? Uh, I need some context for that. Help me with that. Well, uh, the context is, uh, I'm on the board at Bethany Assembly of God in Parma, and Every single month, with the school losing so much money, we're having to put miscellaneous in and out. And I just want to make sure that that's the correct way of doing it. If we're, like, paying half the mortgage to cover the school because the school's money or, or the church's money is going to the pay, cover the payroll, are we, are, we, are we doing it with integrity to post it as a miscellaneous in and out, or is there a better way to reflect that? When you say a miscellaneous in and out, are you reflecting it as an expense to the church and as revenue to the school? It's not showing as revenue to the school. It's showing as we're paying the mortgage or we're paying the um, payroll and that money that would have been set aside for the church is, is basically a loss for the month. So you are recording it as a loss for the church then I would say you're accurate in that. I would probably, um, do, you ha- do you share books or do you each have a separate set of books? Separate. Then what I would, and others may have a different way to approach that. I've never been uh, in a situation that I had both a church and a school that I was managing. Well, I guess that's not true since I'm the church treasurer in Dublin. Um, but I'm not responsible for the accounting. Uh, they run separate books. What I would do in that scenario is I would write a check, have an expense line on my church books that showed what I paid into the school, and then I would show a revenue for the school because then you have a very clear picture of how much the, the school is costing the church because you need that your board. I get to bring the board into a little bit here. Then the board can clearly understand, do we really want to have this school anymore? We have a trend here for the, for the year 2014. We had to invest $100,000 in the school. That may be fine, that may be fine because it may be viewed as a ministry of the church and then reaching out into the community. They want to have people there. That's fine. That's how most schools started. But at some point in time, the tail wags the dog and the school begins to consume church resources and you have a change in leadership and it becomes a drag for that new pastor or the pastoral staff that I get the children's pastor who would love to have the full building and doesn't. Oh, my wife doesn't listen to this. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I would record it where you clearly have then over on the church side, you have an expense. And, and if that runs the church negative, that's important to know. Then over on the school side, if it's breaking even because they've received $100,000 from the school, then you, then you understand we, you know, we're going to have to either, if we want to change this, we've got to increase the revenues like we were talking about. It's hard to do. That means enrollment, well, there's only so much you can do with trying to get new people there, or it's, it's raising the fees which may be adverse to enrollment. Uh, that I'm not sure I can encapsulate that for audio purposes, but for a parallel to that, we have Heartland Conference Retreat Center, which is a subsidiary of the Ohio Ministry Network, and we know exactly how much the Ohio District Council, now Ohio Ministry Network, has invested in the development and operations of Heartland. 
because on, from day one with those books, we have what's, it's a little different scenario. It's, it's actually a, a receive, considered a receivable over by the church and a, and a payable in the realm of, the, of Heartland Conference Retreat Center. So, and every month, those two dollar amounts are exactly the same. We know exactly how much over its 12 years, 13 years of operations, and even before that with its initial development, we know exactly how much we have invested in that entity because it's clearly divided on the, it's clearly highlighted on both sets of books. Are there any more questions? Before I have to, before I have to go to these. Um, workers' compensation. When figuring salary received by a pastor, do I report only his taxable income or taxable plus housing allowance? Oh, this is a really good question, and I really wish I knew the clear answer. Um, if, if memory, it's been a while since I had to do uh, the workers' comp audit when I was at uh, what is now North Point Bible College. Lori Scopelight is the one I would encourage whoever, was this your question, March? Uh, I, would, I would encourage, if you do have questions regarding that, to contact Lori Scopelight. I'm going to give you what I think, and I believe you do have to add that in that you do have to add in the housing allowance as when you're fi- when you're figuring out the amount of the compensation that you should you should factor in there. For audio purposes, we had one of our uh, one of our uh, participants in the room that confirmed that they got dinged when they had not included housing allowance in the calculation for their pastor's compensation. So I think that maybe answers that question for us. Very good. Rob. Uh, We've recently changed uh, outsourcing our payroll, and one of the requirements in getting everything set up was they wanted uh, proof of exemption that we were not liable for state unemployment taxes. And uh, we were able to work that through with the company, but yet not officially give them what they were looking for as far as an official form or something. And we went through a little bit of our, some of our records and saw some things that evidently uh, within the last 20 years or so had been kind of grandfathered in from information from Springfield, but nothing directly for our specific church exempting us. Is there, what's the resource list? Unfortunately. Uh, the interesting thing in trying to affirm your your exemption from federal or state unemployment taxes is a is an interesting thing because a church as a church does not have to file for its own 501c3 nonprofit status but a church that is a part of a denomination as we are in the assemblies of god we are under the the they would say fellowship. The IRS views us as a denomination, and we have what is termed a group exemption letter. And I'm pretty sure that's probably what Rob was talking about, that he looked at some information and found out from general counsel. And that is, unfortunately, it is a convoluted process to affirm that you are a nonprofit organization and are not responsible for, well, you, you are not subject to the federal income tax calculation unemployment tax calculations. Um, The way that you can do that is you contact the general secretary's office in Springfield, Missouri, and you tell them that you need to get proof of their, of the church's 501c3 exemption. And uh, Jim Bradford's office will send you a letter that states that you are, uh, that will provide information regarding the group exemption for the assemblies of God. They will provide you a printout with a highlight of your church being on the roster of assembly of God churches. And then that is the documentation you will turn around and provide to whatever agency is asking you for proof that you are exempt. It is convoluted at best, but I've gone through it twice and that uh, both times when I was in North Carolina. Um, And, uh, that is the best process that there is, unfortunately, unless you have your own 501c3 designation letter. Here's the crazy thing. 
at our office as we are, we are not truly a church. We are, a con- we are considered an association or convention of churches. At one point in time, I believe it was 1974, maybe it was 78, because it's been a while since I looked at the letter, we made an official request of the IRS to get proof that we are a nonprofit organization. We asked for verification that we were a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. Basically, if I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly, we asked for a 501c3 designation number. The response was, you are a church or a convention of churches and are not required to have one. So we couldn't even get one when we wanted it. So, but that's now the letter that I have in hand that if someone questions, are you a true nonprofit corporation, I can not only go to the general counsel and get the group exemption, exemption scenario, I have actually a letter from the IRS that says you don't have to have a designation, which is kind of odd. It's like the, the group of less than two. And, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does, does that apply to state? Yeah, state or federal. And and I've only had an issue with state. Was it was it state? Because and it was your payroll company trying to figure out, are you truly exempt from this? You changed payroll companies. That brought it to the attention of the state agency, and the state agency wanted proof. Yeah, the federal probably doesn't worry about it as much because they've, they've got your EIN connected with their records already, so it's not, it's not as much of a concern for them. If you ever change your church name, do you need a new letter? If you change your church name, do you need a new letter? I guess it would depend on if you changed it completely or if you simply set up a fictitious name and kept the old name. For instance, Ohio Ministry Network is not our incorporation name. It is what's in Ohio termed a fictitious name. And it's, a, it's registered with the state secretary, secretary of state by the Ohio District Council Incorporated of the Assemblies of God. So it would depend on. Now, some churches change their name, where they will, they will, they will. And I don't know how that works. We did that at our church, and we did. You, you file with the state of Ohio to, to file under your new, your new name. That's all you do. Travis. of churches in Ohio that operate from a central treasury compared to an actual budget um, to where in a central treasury none of your ministries are actually budgeted. All the money goes into one pot and from there is distributed or dispersed according to expenses, etc. Can I give any percentage of that here in Ohio? No. <laughs> um, So you're the guilty party for this question that I was that I was dodging. <laughs> he got tired of me waiting. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I don't know what churches do which. I would say that the churches that I have encountered, and I, and for those who don't know, uh, one of the things that I do is I do internal control assessments for churches. Um, actually, I'm doing one on Monday, and so I get some exposure to how churches operate, and most of the, I would say all the churches that I have been at operate with a budget. Now, does that mean that they abide by that? No. Does that mean that, uh, does that, mean that they don't still somewhat function uh, as if they're a central treasury? Uh, they may. And here's, how, here's my approach to how I, uh, when I was a church administrator in, uh, in North Carolina, um, that I approached it. It was kind of, I would say it was a hybrid of this, where I would give each... Um, department director, in this case it was all different pastoral staff people, I would give them a set of budget worksheets that would give them up to 10 different revenue accounts and up to 15 different expense accounts. When they completed that budget worksheet, it would consolidate into a single spreadsheet that would tell me if that, that ministry was going to have surplus revenue at the end of the year or if they were going to be in a deficit at the end of the year. And on the grant, on the pretty much on the whole, they would always end up in the hole. They would always end up in the, as a deficit because they had no, they had no means of raising their own money for operational purposes. We didn't want them to. We wanted fundraising to be about missions. So for the youth department, it was speed the light. For the children's department, it was boys and girls missionary challenge. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm King James Assembly of God. I know what. 
what I know what's politically correct, not not correct to say now, um, in regards to that. Um, so uh, you know, we we were all about if you're going to raise money, it's going to be for missions. So we understood then that the general fund was going to support the operating the operating costs of those ministries. So when they would come to me and say, at the end of the year, we're going to be five thousand in the hole, and I said, that's all great. And they were like, and then we would have simply understood that at the end of the year, if they're if they're the way our charter accounts was structured, if their asset account was less than $5,000 negative, we rejoiced because that meant they spent what no more than what we expected them to spend. And so then at the end of the year, I would make a transfer out of the general fund into the youth fund to bring them back to zero. Because in truth, we told most church accounting is fund accounting, yes, but almost always it's zero-based accounting where, where those departments... You know, they're always going to run negative, but you're not going to punish them for that. You know, perpetually, well, you're $40,000 in the hole after 20 years. Shame on you. Well, you know, you know that's probably to be expected if you're not helping them in some way. So hope that helps answer that question. All right. Um, electronic giving. What was the question in regards to electronic giving? That's an easy one for me, I hope. Gary. Getting started, okay, and um, we're looking at um, the best way to go about it, and uh, what type of, uh, what would you recommend? And uh, I need all the advice I can get because uh, I'm new at this, okay. And so uh, I just want uh, people's opinions, and then so maybe they can help me out. Blue pay fees are your worst enemy. What do you use for online giving? Well, that's probably really loud. Sorry about that. Um, it depends on what you're wanting to do. It depends on if the accounting software that you use can uh, incorporate the online giving into your accounting process to make it more streamlined, or if you're going to have to make uh, use a third-party provider for that. Um, uh, Radiant Life Church in Dublin, they use, they use Vanco Services, V-A-N-C-O. Um, they, they, what sets them apart from some of the other ones, well, not sets them apart necessarily from all other ones, but from the ones I'm more familiar with, is they offer mobile giving. So you actually have an app on your phone where you can give using your phone, which is becoming quite common these days. Some providers may not have that. Um, it depends on how much you want to pay, obviously, for those services. No matter what service you choose, you're going to pay processing fees. Processing fees will probably be the difference between providers will be negligible. So look, for, look more for the services that you want. How easy it is, is it to extract the data? Um, if, your software, you ha if your software vendor has a preferred provider, it may be more expensive, but they have a preferred provider, hopefully for a more valid reason, except they get a bigger cut. Hopefully it's that it makes it easier to use. For instance, um, we use uh, our software, and this is not church software for everybody, but our, church, our software is called ACS Technologies, used to be known as Automated Church Systems. They have an online giving platform that is coupled directly with the software. So when gifts are made by our churches or by our ministers or by anybody else, that data gets downloaded and dumps directly into my general ledger. There is no additional accounting involved in the process. It, it takes a little bit longer for, for the giver to see it pop up on their giving record, but there's much less work in the back office for that. But if your software doesn't have that kind of capabilities, what's going to happen is you will have you will have to then, each time you have a contribution deposit come in, you're going to have to somehow manually get that data into your general ledger account. Many of the online databases, like Church Community Builder, um, who, do you, who do you guys use? You, yeah. So Josh could tell you if you're interested. You guys use online giving with them? Yeah. And then there's a methodology where the online giving data is, is exported out of Church Community Builder, and they can import that into... Into QuickBooks, which is a which is a very common, rather user-friendly accounting package. It is not designed for churches. Out of the box, it takes some customization. 
um, but it can get there. And if you're using QuickBooks and you're struggling with it and you would like a reference for someone that can help you, I have, I have a contact for you, but I'll save that for after the session. I, I, I had a question back here. and Go ahead, Gary, because you have the question first. Should it be a separate account? Should it be a separate account? Oh, that's a good question. Um, for me, the issue came back to the fact that it's directly connected to my general ledger. The way my accounting system is set up, I had to have it go into my main operating account because the online giving contributions, though processed differently, hit my general ledger exactly like the check contribution that came in from Pastor Smith or from First Church. So because the check gets processed this way and dumps into the general ledger and the online giving contribution batch looks the same way, it had to go directly to my general to my main operating account. Um, if that's not the case for you, then actually it may make it easier to reconcile if you if you separated it. Because when you have online giving, what do you have? You have contributions up to 20 times a, a month that you must account for. Because basically you can have a deposit on every day every banking day of the month, and you've got to reconcile them all. So having them in a separate bank account may, and then and then once you've got it reconciled, then transferring over that money could could make that a simpler process when you come to your reconciliations. Did you have your hand up? Okay, I knew I saw a hand back there. AG Credit Union. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. If you go to ag.org on their homepage, you will see an online giving platform that I have not touched, but they call it Generush as in Usher, you know, like in a church, called Generush. I don't know what the fees are. I don't know how it works. But if you want to keep it in the family, so, so to speak, uh, you can go to AG Credit Union, and they can help you with that. And not that I will get a cut, because I doubt he would do that, but you can tell, um, you can tell their CEO, Paul, that I used to work for, um, hi, for Shelby. Um, what are the normal Normal processing fees. Well, you're going to have some kind of monthly fee, just like a subscription. We pay $30 a month uh, just, just to have the construct of online giving. And then the actual processing charges can be wide and varied. Uh, for, online, for an electronic check for us, we pay $0.35 cents for every, every gift that has come from an, from an electronic check. That is whether it's a dollar or a thousand dollars. It costs us 35 cents for that transaction. And that is the reason why I encourage all of our ministers who do online giving with us to use the electronic method because it helps us keep our costs down. If it is a credit card for us, it is 35 cents per transaction and then two and a half, I want to get this right, maybe two and a quarter percent of the transaction for credit for plastic card processing, whether it's a credit card or a debit card. It's 35 cents plus two and a quarter percent, I think, for us. And, and that can be varied as well. It depends on your volume. Uh, I would suspect the only way that McDonald's can afford to do it is their, net, their fees are just minimal because of the millions of transactions and millions of dollars of transactions they do in a given year. Um, does anybody else have, have a have a comment on Josh? I've a tech background. I've set some of these stuff up before, and for online giving, uh, it will pay for itself. Um, as a pastor, I can say um, that it will pay for itself. You can expect almost a thirty percent increase in revenue, um, and so whatever fees you're paying, if it's fifty bucks a month, well, if it brings in seven hundred bucks a month, or even if it brings in a hundred bucks a month, you still you're still ahead. So. That's just, you know, my. Uh, we're looking currently into online giving, and one uh, practical little dilemma that we've discussed around the board, don't have an answer for it yet, is how do you deal with just the practicality of when you have special guests, offerings are being taken, et cetera, and uh, you're wondering, okay, what do we cut the check for? You've got people with their smartphones. They, uh, you've got a 1,000 that came in cash, regular checks. You've got X amount of dollars that, came in, how do you know how to deal with that? You know, people are given, uh, using their smartphone, and you have no clue within a matter of a few minutes, okay, you're getting ready to, to uh, bless this. 
Are you asking more what you do with the fee or just determining the amount that you paid to the individual? Well, if, if, it's, if it's determining the amount to give, I would just say that that individual is going to understand that there is a lag time before it's finalized. And, you know, you just, they would, in my view, I would just have them come in understanding there will be a lag time. It's going to be subject to our normal accounts payable process to be able to issue that check. I thought you were asking, do you withhold the processing fee? Because <laughs> I've had people ask me that. I've had people ask me that. Well, what do I do if I had to pay this much fee? And I'm, I, I'm sorry, that's a cost of doing business. If you don't want that cost, don't start it. Josh has already helped you with that. You're going to, overall, you'll see a significant increase. And Josh, you can't answer this question because he knows the answer. I have, does anybody have an idea as to, I've already told you how the main revenues come into our office. So do you have an idea as to why I dragged my feet in getting online giving going? I knew it was not going to increase our giving. Our giving is regulated. It depends on how much comes from the church and how much the pastors are making. So I knew that just by turning on online giving, based on, based on what our normal, just from ministers, our normal amount that we receive from ministers in a given year, what that was going to do was mean I was going to now eat about $3,000 in processing fees if they all go that route. So I didn't want that to happen, but... For churches, it's for many that get it going, it's like getting a fifth Sunday every month, even when there's only four Sundays, because you have a January where you don't have a lot of church services because the weather was so bad in Ohio. You still have people who did recurring gifts set up that those gifts are still going to come in. So it can be a huge blessing. Man, I have almost dodged all of these board questions. <laughs> okay. Can you explain the different levels of audits, audit uh, reviews, approximate costs, and how often to have them? Um, some churches just have it written into their into their bylaws that they want to they want some kind of audit at least every three years. Um, you can do it more or less. Again, I mentioned to you that I do an internal controls assessment. That's not what this is talking about. I don't think. This is talking about actually having a CPA come in, which I'm not, having a CPA coming in and actually reviewing the books. There are, there are different levels of uh, severity to time, um, depth of, re, of review, and certainly costs. Um, compilation is a service that an accountant can provide. Compilation basically means you're going to give them your internal reports and they're going to turn around and give you reports that are what a bank would like to see. It's going to be in their proper form and, and, and laid out, balance sheet, revenue and expense. They're going to have that all like a bank might want to see, which can be very valuable when you're trying to get financing. Now, I used to work for AG Financial, selling retirement services. Great product, but... I also um, know why their loan fund does so well. I have an opinion, and that opinion is that because churches don't have financials in the proper format for a bank to truly appreciate. And so they go to their brothers at the Assemblies of God Loan Services who are used to seeing financial statements that are not in proper form. And, oh, no problem, brother, no problem, sister. We'll just charge an extra percent or two. It's okay. Man, I'm going to get busted on that one if somebody <laughs> listens to this. Um, Dave Gross, Radiant Life Church in Dublin, they recently refinanced their worship center on Post Road, and they went from, I believe it was a 6.5% interest rate with AG Financial to a 4.4% interest rate with Union Bank of Lima yeah. because their financials were a, a strong enough but the bank was able to they actually the gentleman there is really good with working with churches as well um, that's what you can do if your financials are in a good a good form a compilation is simply them taking your internals and putting them into good accountant standard form next level is a review um, that is 
The, the second of the three, it's a little more involved. They're going to they're gonna research your stuff a lot more than because in the compilation, there's really no research involved. They don't verify anything. They're just making your, st your statements look right. In a review, they're going to take on a little bit of risk. You're going to pay a little bit for that risk, and they're going to give you an – basically, they will say from their review whether or not they believe there are any material concerns – of your financials or do the financial statements fairly represent the operations. Um, that one for our operation, um, about $4,000 for that, but we're over a $4 million entity. Church will be probably a far less time, time for them. Uh, so the less time they have to spend paying a hundred or $200 an hour for their accountant, whatever that might be. Um, then obviously your service, your, your service fees will be a lot less. Uh, Full-blown audit, when they assume the most risk regarding what they say about uh, the wherewithal of your financials uh, is much more in-depth. They are going to ask for you to give them letters for a, um, a sampling of your contributors that they will send a copy of their statement to along with a letter and ask them to review their financial, their, their contribution report and if there are any discrepancies that they actually would report to the auditing firm uh, rather than just back to you. And so again, they are going to verify all of your bank statements as far as they're going to ask your bank, what was First Church's bank balance on 1231-13? And they're going to get that, that responsible, it's called a, a bank confirmation. That will go directly to the auditor, and they will then take it and match it against the records you provided internally and make sure that they coincide. Uh, so there's not, again, a material weakness of any kind. Um, we did that for the 2012 year for our operation, and I want to say it was just under $6,000 for our entity. Again, for a church entity, it would be, I don't know, I'm going to guess probably half or less. It's, it's not going to be the same severity. Um, that, a, that a local church would have, basically just based on time and the number of transactions. The larger your corporation, what they have to do is they're going to do a sampling of all of your contribution batches that come in. They're going to do a sampling of all the checks that went out. And so the larger your entity, the more of those they have to check to be able to give a reasonable assertion of yes or no, we put our seal of approval on these. How often... You, you can get good resources if you wanted to have an, an external audit every three years and then do an internal audit on your own. That wouldn't even mean me. There are good internal audit resources that a local church, if you've got, if you've got people in your church that have the, the knowledge base to do that, that they could actually do that. When I was in, uh, sorry, sorry I keep referring back to when I was in North Carolina, but that's where I was a church administrator. We had a gentleman, I've dodged that question all the whole session. Um, <laughs> we, we, had a, we had a gentleman in our church, we did, not have, we did not have an external audit. They were fearful that the expense was going to be too great. Uh, I was a first-time church administrator, so I didn't fight them on it. Um, but we had a gentleman in our church who worked for the federal district attorney in Raleigh, and his sole responsibility was tracking down money launderers for the federal government. He led our internal audit <laughs> and figured they all felt okay. And he was not part of the board. He was not part of our, our finance committee. He was, he was just someone else in the church. He led the internal audit for us every year that I was there, and everybody thought that was a, a great thing. Okay. Sorry, but I just don't have time to get to that question. Whoever wrote this question, uh, I, I will be glad to try to talk with you after the session, but I don't want to keep anybody from getting to the next session. It has been my absolute pleasure to be with you. Um, I can't believe you guys laughed when I felt like it was appropriate for you to laugh at me because uh, uh, as, as most finance people, I suffer from a lack of comedic timing. Um, but I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for coming. If you have any questions, I'll be glad to try to help afterwards. If you have any questions in regards to health insurance, again, Barb and Tom are here, and I know that they would love to help you if at all possible. So I hope you all have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. Oh, is it going until? Oh, that's right. Oh, man. <laughs> Am I red? Am I red? Okay. Easy question from Carla. And actually, some of this room can probably answer, I'm sure, fairly easy. 
Um, I'm getting a lot of calls from personnel concepts about compliance posters wanting $300 a year, and they, they sent, they're calling me daily. What other avenues do you guys use to keep in compliance with your posters and eliminate these people? That is a very good question. And if, and if you all would like to send me an email afterward, oh, and I did not provide that to you, uh, my email is shelby at ohioministry.net. Um, if you will send me an email, I will send you a batch of posters that you can, by yourself, create free of charge. Um, yes, you get these per personnel concepts. Oh, I hate them. Sorry. Oh. Um, yeah, they will. They will send you these emails. You are out of compliance, or they'll send you these these print pieces. They'll they'll tell you you're out of compliance. And and the, here's the kicker. Most, and I'm not going to say all because that is inaccurate. Most of the posters that they would try to sell you, a church does not have to have, because most of them are for larger employers. So there is a free, you can create your own free bundle. What I will do, I'm not going to send you the one that may be the most valid for you right now because they, they can get updated. What I will send you is the batch that I created for our office, and then you can do a quick Google search and find the most current version of each of the reports, that, the, the reports, uh, posters, that you will see in that bundle. And you can create this bundle of reports all on your own. Now, how can you get personal concepts to stop sending you stuff? That's a better question. Um, but you do not have to pay any subscription in order to stay in compliance with the federal posting requirements. That was a good question. Well, it's still going to take over a huge wall. You want to have a bulletin board of some kind, but you don't have to have the nice, pretty laminated one that they're happy to charge you an arm and a leg for. Uh, there's another follow-up question then regarding the audits and reviews. What financial, and this one might help, this one kind of coincides with the one I had been dodging. Uh, that's why I was dodging it as well. Uh, what financial or analytical reports are good to use in board meetings other than a balance sheet, profit and loss, or fund balances? Um, and then looking for good charts ideas. Is that, a, is that associated with that, or was that a different question? Same thing. Okay. Other than the standard reports. Okay. The other question was how to help the board understand budgeting and financial reports when no one on the board has understanding. <laughs> <sighs> now you know why I was trying to dodge that one. Um, I wish I could give you this is the, this is the magic bullet to, to get you there. Um, I have, I'll give you a piece of advice that I was given when I landed at Zion Bible College, now North Point Bible College. I was a bit overzealous the first time that we had the Board of Trustees meeting coming in. The Board of Trustees met in October and April, and I was hired in June. So I had a few months to get ready for my, uh, my first trustee meeting. And I had stuff that had been left behind by my predecessor. And, I mean, I made this very sweet package of reports. I was very proud. I, I was so stoked. It was only about 20 pages long. Uh, landscape with very thin lines for each GL account on our chart of accounts, which was, um, well, of those, it was at least 900 um, we had a we had the Monday night meeting with just the finance committee, and one of the guys stepped up to me and he said, "Shelby, he goes, nobody tomorrow wants to see this." I was like, "What? I worked hard on this." He's like, "It's too much information for them. They don't they don't want to know all of this level of detail." Um, so we'll go to the the kiss principle. Keep it simple, stupid. Silly. Sorry, we don't use stupid in my house. Um, uh, keep it simple. Um, and what I did is I actually took his advice. Uh, as much as it ached me and pained me to do so, I took his advice, and I condensed that 21 pages down into one page of, of the main headings. So for the church operations, it's going to look a little different because you may want to give each 
grouping, but for the college operation, we had academic services, student services, advancement services, that's fundraising, and administrative services. So I took the 16 departments that make up those four, not just 21 departments, that make up those four overarching groups, and I just pressed them all into a subheading of each of those. So I said, here's how much came in for, for academic services. Here's how much came in in regards to student services. So I had four incomes, and I think I had five expenses and a bottom line, and they all loved it. And I was like, <laughs> what? You don't know how many hours I spent getting these beautiful colored, I mean, full color reports ready for you. Um, will that work in the local church environment? I don't know. But again, if you have the environment where people don't truly understand, giving them all of the line item detail. And again, I mentioned I am the treasurer now at Radiant Life Church over in Dublin. Um, and I've inherited, I've inherited the reporting mechanism from my predecessor. And I haven't changed it yet. And I haven't changed it because I'm about to move the church away from the existing accounting system to a new accounting system. I'm actually moving them. This is crazy as can be. I'm moving them from a product called Shelby Systems <laughs> to, to ACS. Um, so I guess they're, they're getting a different kind of Shelby Systems. Um, but because I know that that change has been in the works, I haven't tried to change any of the reporting mechanisms. But they sit there. We go, we go line by line because they're used to seeing it. And so I guess it also depends on what is your committee, your board accustomed to seeing. If they're accustomed to seeing the line in detail, they may wonder, why is it not here all of a sudden? What are you trying to hide? Um, nothing. I'm just trying to make it a little simple for you. Oh, you want, you want a, a detailed copy? Here you go. You're just trying to make it more palatable, more easy to comprehend for everybody. If you can say the youth ministry, uh, again, if you use the example I had earlier of how much you expect them to lose, you know, they budgeted that they were going to be at uh, at hundred dollars in the in the red by the end of March, and they're only seventy-five. Praise the Lord! You know, that was the investment the general fund made. You can approach that a couple of different ways. If you want to go the other direction, instead of having the negative number show. Then you say, okay, we budgeted that we're going to give, let me put this into $6,000 because it's easier numbers. Um, the youth ministry was going to be, and I always pick on youth pastors. I don't know why. I still pick on Tom at the office. Um, <clears throat> you, okay, the youth ministry was going to be overall $6,000 in the red by the end of the year. Okay, then at the end of every month, the general fund transfers 500 to the youth department. Okay, so they're still in the black, and that's good. That's where you want them to be because they're still living within their budget. Now, if they end up having a surplus at the end of the year, guess what you can do? You can take it back. But that means they've performed like they should have. Um, so it's a matter of getting them what they're accustomed to seeing. Um, so it's not necessarily that you get rid of the profit and loss, but maybe you just give them a compressed form of that, that you subtotal on main headings so that you're not worried about how much they spent for youth camp in and out or how much they spent for VBS in and out, but how much did the children's ministry do? How much did the youth department do to try to just make it a little more um, accommodating for them to understand? Didn't dodge it after all. All right. It's been my absolute pleasure. I think I've said that before. I'm having a bit of deja vu. I hope you all have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you so much for coming. And again, I'll be glad for any, help you with any questions afterward. God bless.